Welcome. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. And uh, as you probably heard this week, we are kicking off a new series tonight. Last week was Easter. If you were here, it was an amazing service. I'll have to say probably one of my favorite services we've ever had as a church. But Easter is past. We don't forget about Easter, but we move on in God's truth. And we're looking at the story or the book of Ruth. We're going to do this one like we have many books in the past. It's going to be chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. I am not skipping a word in this series, and you are stuck with me this entire series, so get ready. And as I thought about this, I thought, well, how do we tell the story? Because Ruth at its core is a story. It's a narrative. And it's kind of difficult to preach a story if you don't know the whole story. But then I thought, well, most of us watch Netflix and Hulu, and it's not like we start a new story or a new series and be like, well, I can't watch episode one until I know what happens at the end. I don't think most of us do that anyway. So I recently watched WandaVision. Has anybody seen that one? That is the weirdest starting series ever. It's like a 1950s sitcom and somehow it ends up as a Marvel movie. I enjoyed the process of like starting here, having no idea what was going on, and then getting to the end. So let me just tell you, if you want to read the four chapters of Ruth, I did encourage that this week. You'll know the spoiler. You know how the story ends. But there are some in the room, and I'm pointing straight at her right now, that said, you know what? that's a lot of reading. Can I just read one chapter? I said, absolutely. So each week we're going to go through one chapter. This will be a four-week series, verse by verse, word by word. And if you've read this book or you know anything about it, there are some common themes here. So themes we're going to be looking at through this series are loyalty, doing the right thing, and then the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. We'll get to all of that. But the biggest theme throughout this story, and Nicole and I had a conversation about it this week, is simply this. It's the same story that is throughout the Bible, that God is working. God is working in the tragedies, God is working in the mundane, and God is working even, yes, in the weird, God is working. Anybody besides me, March Madness, NCAA fans in the room? Okay, we got two cool people in this entire (laughs) church. Opening weekend of March Madness is my Christmas. It is my holiday. I literally, and I use the word press, I use the word literally right there. I literally sit at my TV and watched 48 basketball games that first weekend. I didn't catch all of every game, but I saw parts of all 48 games, and my bracket was busted within the first two games. I think a lot of us had busted brackets because it was a great tournament. The underdog was winning. It was very unpredictable. And so I Googled this week the odds of someone getting a perfect NCAA March Madness bracket. Those odds are 1 in 9.2 quintillion. I didn't know what quintillion was, but apparently it is a billion billions. There has never been in the history of ever a perfect NCAA tournament bracket. In the history, there has only been one person that can be verified because there's lots of liars out there. There's only been one person who has even made it past the second round with a perfect bracket. That's how much variables, that's how many statistics are in this. And there's only 64 teams. One in 9.2 quintillion chance of getting them all right. And yet God working an infinitely more complex bracket that's called life, 
works billions and trillions of variables and people to bring ultimately about his purpose, all without interfering with man's free will. And so if you know the story of Ruth, you've heard it before, maybe preached or you've read it before, as we go through this, set all those old versions aside. Just not that they're wrong, but just set them aside. Especially if you've heard it as a fairy tale love story, which I've heard it taught as before, it's not. This is not a girl gets guy, girl has baby, and everybody lives happily ever after. That is not the story. This is a story just like every story in the Bible that is there to teach us about God's character, God's ways, God's truth, and most of all, God's love. So perhaps it is a love story after all. So let's just jump into it. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and it starts like this. In the days when judges ruled in Israel. I'll stop right there. I'm going to stop and start a lot tonight. Stop right there. This was roughly 1250 to 1050 B.C. If you don't know anything about the history of Israel, they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. Moses gets the Ten Commandments. God's people eventually make it into, what, the promised land. They get there. God's people aren't very good at keeping the basic laws, the ten that God gave them. So they make a whole bunch more commands to relate back to the other commands. There's hundreds of commandments. Nobody knows how to keep up with all these commandments, so they come up with a judge system to kind of organize everything. But the system's very disorganized. These leaders are part judges, they're part military leader, they're part governor, they're part spiritual leader. It's an ever-evolving structure. A lot of instability, which means it's also a time of political, social, and spiritual unrest. Does that sound familiar (laughs) to anybody? A lot of comparisons to this time period and our time period today. A lot of political polarization, natural disasters, cultural shifts, Gender inequality, racial disparity, international tensions, injustice, violence, wars. Not a lot has changed. If you go to the Jewish Bible, which if you don't know is a little bit different than our Old Testament, they have their own kind of version of the Old Testament. They put books in different orders. If you go to the Jewish Bible, Ruth comes right after Proverbs, which is very fitting because Ruth is a very good example of how to live wisely, of wisdom living. But in our Christian Bible, Ruth follows the book of Judges because it happens at the time of Judges and it precedes 1 Samuel. (coughs) Excuse me. So at a macro level, this book forms a bridge between the Judges and the monarchy of Misfits that we talked about last year, Saul and David and all those guys. That's the macro level. But at the micro level, this book is simply a tragedy. It's an urgent family issue And they try to reinterpret some of the laws of God to get through their family issues. So you have the macro, you have the micro, but you also have a cosmic level to the story. And only those of us on this side of the New Testament get to see that cosmic level as we see God working through the tragedy of these lives, the poor, the powerless, the lost, and the lonely to bring about his plan of making everything new. So the story went like, that was a lot for one sentence in the the story. It says, in the days when judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. And so the macro, these bad leaders, this disorganization has an impact in the micro. A drought happens, a disaster happens, and it brings hard times to individuals 
and families. Again, there is nothing new under the sun. We know this today. Still in verse 1. We haven't got through it yet. Thank you, sir. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah. What do we know about Bethlehem? That's where Jesus was born, right? That's where David grew up. It's also, the word Bethlehem means house of bread, which means it's very fertile land, and now they're going through a famine. So it says, a man from Bethlehem left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. Israel and Moab, two separate countries. They are not BFFs. And so this is the initial inciting incident in the story, and it sets things into motion. Moab is Israel's next-door neighbor to the east. They're often in conflict. There is mutual animosity. Dates all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you don't know the stories, Lot's daughters think that there are no other men alive. They get their dad drunk, and they know him in the biblical sense. Yeah, you can be disgusted about that as you want. As gross as that is, Lot had previously tried to prostitute his daughter, so it is a messed up family and a messed up story. So that's the Moabites. They come out of that group of people. And yet here they are, the Israelites are living in the promised land, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. This is the land promised by God to Abraham and his descendants, and this land, this promised land full of milk and honey is ravaged by famine. And so there is malnutrition, There are daily deaths to the point where, we don't know this man's name yet, this man is willing to leave his home country, go across borders, to live as a refugee in enemy territory. And so we'll start with a question tonight. How far would you go to feed your family? Would you beg if you had to? Would you steal if you had to? Would you move your Christian family to an all-Muslim nation? Would you take a raft across the ocean to a place where you're not welcomed? How far would you go to feed your family? Well, this man, verse 2, says his name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, if I'm saying that right. Ephrath. I should have practiced that. If you don't know anything about the Bible, if you don't know the word, just say the word loud and proud and everybody thinks you do. So let's try that again. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. So this is our story beginning. These refugees, they've settled now in the land of Moab, these Jews. And so what is life typically like for an immigrant refugee? Have you ever had a conversation with one? It's mind-opening. Usually all it is is exchanging one form of misery for another form of misery. They're living in temporary shelters. There is disease. There is a lack of educational opportunity. There are language barriers. And of course, there are prejudice. You people, taking our jobs, taking our food. Speak Moabite, you stupid Jew. And so you go to this country, and it's apathy at best, and it's potential genocide at worst. And so I ask you again, how far would you be willing to go to feed your family? That, what we just talked about, is how far Elimelech was willing to go. Verse 3 then says this, Then Elimelech died, 
And Naomi was left with her two sons. To say things went from bad to worse would be a colossal understatement. Naomi has gone from a refugee immigrant to now a woman without a husband. And that may sound bad to us in our American culture, but the Bible is not American. Y'all know that, right? It's, the Bible is not American. And so every time we open the Bible, we have to remind ourselves of that fact, that we as Westerners are as far removed from the world of the Bible as any culture in the world. And without recognizing that significance, we will distort, we will diminish, and we will miss entirely the message of the story. The Bible is not American. The story of Ruth, the story of every narrative in the Bible, takes place in a full-grown patriarchal system. Do you know what that means? It means women are not important, and men are important. That's it. Women, not important. Men, important. And so as a biblical woman, your value was derived from the men in your life. Your father, your sons, your grandfather, your husband. Sons are patriarchy's gold standard. It's how for a woman, you would determine your value by your sons. As a wife, your only job of any significant value was to produce sons. Well, at least Naomi has done her job. She has produced two sons. Her husband is gone, but she's got two sons that will now care for her. And most important in this culture, the sons would ensure that the family name would continue for another generation when they married women and they had sons. Verse 4 says, the two sons married Moabite women. On the right track here. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. We were talking with Mike earlier. These names are really important in my family. My grandma's name was Ruth. She had a daughter named Naomi, so they have it flipped a little bit, and a daughter named Orpha, which was based on Orpah. We named our youngest daughter Emery. I almost called her Emily again. Emery. Emery Ruth Culbertson. So these are important names in our family. So 10 years later, we're told... Both Malon and Killian died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons, without her husband. Most newer academic research agrees that when we read the book of Ruth, you're actually reading the story of a female Job. I think everybody kind of knows Job's story. Everything goes wrong that could possibly go wrong in Job's life. And so Ruth is a female, or I'm sorry, Naomi is a female version of Job. Job lost his livestock. He lost his servants. He lost his wife. He lost his children. He lost his health. Remember all the boils and everything. Well, Naomi is enduring a famine. She's living the life of a refugee. Then her husband dies, and then her sons die. But you see, there's one difference between Job and Ruth. Job is a man. And in a patriarchal system, Job can eventually begin over. He can remarry. He can have sons. But Naomi, she's a postmenopausal woman. She's done. She's finished. And so Naomi isn't just a sidebar to the story of Ruth. Naomi 
her suffering, her pain is every bit as much the story as it is the story of Ruth. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's lost her income. She's lost her ability to survive. She's lost her identity as a woman. She's lost her self-worth. And there's another layer if we read between the lines of the story. Her sons were married for 10 years. There's no kids. No sons. Was it because they didn't try? 10 years of marriage, we're going to stay celibate? I doubt it. Pretty sure they were trying every month for 10 years and failing. Infertility is a profound heartache today for couples who wish to conceive. But in biblical times, not being able to conceive a son was the grand tragedy. That's why you see in the Bible so many accounts of barren women and going to desperate measures to have kids, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah, and they do all these unethical things because they know they need a son and welcome to patriarchy. If you ever read the Old Testament, you know why polygamy exists? One, because men are scum, number one, we can be, but two, women's value was so low that they would say to their wife, listen, Miss Wife, if you can't give me a son, then I'll just marry somebody else who can give me a son, and I will keep marrying until I find a woman who can give me a son. And so we've got Ruth and we've got Orpah. They got no sons. They got no husbands. We got Naomi. The day they buried her sons, she was essentially buried too. So we have three women here, and in Western society, we just, we just know and we believe that everyone has rights. Like, everybody has rights, right? It should be fair. But that's not the case in some cultures today, and that's certainly not the case in the Middle East of ancient biblical time. And so these women, they have no rights. They could be used, they could be abused with impunity. And so no rights, no voice. They are targets for abuse, exploitation, sexual assault, trafficking. They're in danger. And so as we've read just these five opening verses of the story, this should feel heavy. This story should feel heavy. Catastrophic loss, sitting in ruins, dead husbands, dead sons, the female Job, her life all but dead. But we're only five chapters into the story, which means the story isn't over. We just finished celebrating Easter last week, and Jesus was on the cross, but the story wasn't over. Jesus was in the tomb, but the story wasn't over. And so God's character, God's way, God's truth, God's love is the rest of the story. So verse 6 says, Then, after all of these things, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. For many refugees in a foreign land, their only dream is to get back home. That's home. That's familiar. It's a way to get rid of the foreigner label, which is not a fun label to carry. But it's also a little scary. It's uncertain. What's home going to look like? There was a famine. Who's going to be missing? I left. Are they going to accept me back home when I return? 
Verse 7 says, With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. Verse 8, But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and me. Naomi waited until they were en route to Bethlehem before revealing her plan. Why do you think that is? Because if she had said this while they were still in Moab, the girls might have tried to convince her to stay with them there in Moab. But Naomi is going home not to live. She's going home to die. And so she doesn't want to any longer be a burden to Ruth, to Orpah, to anyone. And so she says, may the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. What this is, is a sacrificial act of love by Naomi. She's putting her daughters-in-law interest ahead of her own, even from her depressed state. And she calls them her daughters. And they got pros and cons of going back to Moab or going to Israel. They can reintegrate into society if they go back to Moab. They can have a second marriage. I mean, if they go to Judah, no Judahite is going to marry a pagan girl. I mean, worst case scenario, they could be a sister wife to somebody and at least be provided for. I don't know. But if they go back to Moab, they have a chance. Verse 10, though, they say, no, we want to go with you to you and your people. Your people. I don't know what the last 10 years look like, but these women see something in Naomi and her family and her people that was different. And they say, we want to be with you and your people. I mean, what's Ruth and Orpah's background as a family? I mean, they had a Moabite father that was willing to marry them off to a Jewish famine refugee. It's not a good situation. And I'm sure Naomi, when she thought about who was going to marry her son, she wanted traditional marriage to a good Jewish girl. But she builds a special bond with these two Moabite women. The arch enemy of Israel, she builds a relationship that is so special with their daughters-in-laws, it makes an impact. And now they want to be with her and her people. But Naomi replies in verse 11, she said, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who can grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters. Again, doesn't say daughter-in-law. She says, no, my daughters. Return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? It's their second attempt to get these girls to go back home, and it's more forceful. This isn't some loyalty test. This is simply compassion. She's trying to spare them the rough road that's ahead. A road that would be much longer for them because they're a lot younger than she is. Now she mentions here, she uses this argument, and it's the Leviverite law. And she says, basically, there's this law. It's a legal safety net thing that provides that when a man died and he didn't have a son, his blood brother could marry his widow. Actually, he was supposed to marry the widow. And when the firstborn son would raise up, he would take the dead man's place in the family. It's kind of a weird thing to us, but that was the law that was in place in this culture. And so Ruth is saying, hey, you ladies, my daughters, there's only one shot for you in Judah. For me to get married, 
to conceive male sons. They need to be twins, so you each get one. Then wait for them to get old enough to marry, and then hope that they choose you instead of a younger virgin bride. In other words, she's like, this is stupid. This is unrealistic. This is not going to happen. And so she says to these girls, stay here in Moab where at least you have options. Hold on to that thought. In future episodes, in future weeks, we're going to come back to that. But we're going to continue this story tonight. No, of course not, my daughter. She says, this is impossible. This is stupid. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And so here is Naomi. The dam has burst. She is in deep depression. This is a flood of grief. And this time in her grief, she adds a theological expression to the grief. She says, God did this to me. Now, I've heard this preached before, and people get on Naomi for this. It's like, how's she going to accuse God for her troubles? And then they'll go into the faith over fear sermon, or the trust God more sermon, or the fill in the blank with some kind of church rhetoric sermon. But this is just another Job moment. This is Naomi speaking simply what is on her heart which mirror the exact words that Job verbalized in his book. And we praise Job for speaking his heart and speaking those words. And so apparently, even in our culture today, a man can get an honest lament, but women can't. But the Bible is teaching us something different here, men and women. We get to be honest with our feelings, with our emotions, with our despair, In fact, the Bible just doesn't give us permission. It encourages us to be honest. Remember those commandments to not lie. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And so she's being honest, and we can be honest, that it's difficult for me to find peace with a God who says he loves me, but at the same time allows these difficult tragedies to rain down on my family. And we can be honest that it's difficult to see people suffering, even people I don't even know, and not ask God, why would you let this happen? Naomi is a lifelong, tried and true follower of God. She is a daughter of Abraham. She is an heir to the promise. And I tell you what, we need to hear this girl lament. We need to hear her doubt in God's love for her, and we need to hear her story. Verse 14 says, and again they wept together. But this time Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Orpah takes the sensible and even obedient route. She goes home. But it says, Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Clung. The word's used a few times in the Hebrew Bible. It's the word depak. It's used in Genesis 2 to describe a man leaving his mother and father and clinging to his new wife. And so to cling in the Bible is a strong word. In verse 15, it says, look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has done the smart thing. She's gone back to her people and her gods. You should do the same. Just gives her one more try. Points to Orpah with approval. In verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. 
Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's the famous one, y'all. That's the verse that everybody knows. Where you go, I will go. Or maybe, maybe you knew it this way. Whither thou goest, I will go. This is the verse. Even when I wasn't a Christian, I remember hearing this quoted and saying at weddings, which is ironic because they were mostly heterosexual weddings and this is a profession of love between two women. But that's another story for another time. This is a beautiful profession of love, regardless of who it's between. It's loyalty in this statement. There is commitment in this statement. But there's something else, and maybe you might have missed it. Within this statement by Ruth is a profession of faith. She says, your God, and she uses the word Yahweh, which is the covenantal name of the Jewish God. She says, your Yahweh will be my Yahweh. The God that you just said raised up his hand against you? Well, I've heard you talk about this God before. And I see how you live your life because of this God. And I see your faith, and I see your devotion, and I feel your compassion. And now the God of Jacob, who endures through generations, will be my God. And now the God of Moses, who opened up that I've heard that story. That God will be my God. This is a profession of faith. And so despite her mother-in-law's wishes, despite what other people might think, Ruth makes a radical personal choice. This young woman, I'd probably call her a girl. She had no voice. She's told who she had to marry. She was subject to her husband's every whim. And now she gets to make the decision. And that decision is your God is going to be my God. And then she says, wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Again, those are powerful words. That's why they are beautiful words for a wedding. So what is driving Ruth? Is it that she loves Naomi so much that she can't bear parting with her? Well, there could be some truth there, but I think there's more. I think we've made it clear Ruth is suffering too. She's lost her husband. She's lost her identity. She's barren. She's poor. She's powerless. But she's watched Naomi for 10 years embrace her as a Moabite, as a daughter. She's seen the faith of Naomi. She's seen her God. She's seen how life-giving he's been. She's seen that even while Naomi was at her lowest point, she sees sacrificial love and compassion towards her and her sister. I'll read a quote to you, and sometimes I'm doing research for sermons and I forgot to uh, make notes where I found the quote, (laughs) but it's so fitting, and it went like this. When you've been living in the darkness all your life, even a flickering of light has the power to pull you forward. Let me read that again. When you've been living in the darkness all your life, even a flickering of light has the power to pull you forward. So even at her lowest, Naomi has been a bearer of God's light, pulling Ruth forward. And so Ruth says, if your God can make you love like you have loved me, then it's a hell of a lot better than anything I've ever experienced. I'm coming with you. 
Verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she gave up. She said nothing more. She's been outmatched by her daughter-in-law. This is a pivotal turn in the story. So the two of them, it says, continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, it says the entire, entire town was excited. This is more validation for Ruth that the God of these people is different. She is an undocumented immigrant. She just crossed the border. No security checkpoints, no barbed wire fence, no vetting, no drones, just excitement that she is there. And they say, is this really Naomi? All the women asked. Remember, it's been a decade since Naomi and Elimelech have left. Say, is this really Naomi? Because where are your husband? Where are your sons? Who's this strange girl here by your side? And Naomi replies in a very interesting way. She says, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Naomi, her name means pleasant, or it can mean sweet. It's what Naomi means. She says, I'm not sweet anymore. I'm not pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. She's bitter and empty with Ruth right there beside her who despite her own broken heart has sacrificed everything to be with her and vowed to stick to her to the end. And I'm going to tell you, that's what deep depression looks like. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such a tragedy upon me? Have you ever been there? Just in such a dark, dark place that you couldn't see any of the signs of hope that God was putting into your life. You were just so buried in that tragedy, in that darkness that you said, call me bitter, call me Mara. Or maybe in our American way, we say, my life sucks. We're unable to see any of the blessings that are around us. Now, there are certain different levels of tragedy Yesterday, I was having some friends over. I wanted to trim up my beard a little bit. You notice I got a baby face a little bit more tonight. I got out my razor and I forgot to close the thing. And the first swipe, I shaved off my entire mustache or half of it. And I certainly couldn't walk around with a must, half a mustache. So I had to shave my beard. And I feel naked up here, I'll tell you right now, without a beard. I like having a beard. I feel silly. That was a tragedy. <laughs> Of epic proportion. <laughs> but there are, I make light, we know there are serious tragedies of epic proportion. And as I think about that, you know, not everything that happens, not every horrible thing that happens in life has a silver lining. That can be hard news to hear. I mean, it may, but not a silver lining that we may not see until glory. And so sometimes, like Mara, like Naomi, it's okay to just sit in the suck. Have you heard that phrase before? I thought I invented it until I Googled it. <laughs> to sit in the suck. 
I heard a TED talk this week and a girl was talking about college admissions. And I guess there's been this ramping up, you know, you have to write an essay to get into college that goes with your grades and everything. And there's a ramping up that most of the essays that are coming in are trauma essays. Have you heard that term before? Trauma essays. And it's basically this overwhelming pressure for high school students to put their deepest traumas onto their college application so that they can show this beautiful redemption story. The one lady who was teaching, she was Asian, and she said, you know, I've told this story thousands of times. I grew up an Asian immigrant. I was made fun of throughout my childhood. Everybody else had normal lunches and PB&J, and I had these really stinky lunches because of my heritage, and I would have to go eat and hide in the bathroom. But that experience made me who I am today. Don't you want to accept me to your school? Do you see kind of the disgust of that? She is confessing a trauma to a faceless stranger and her future depends on it. See, sometimes in life, a sucky thing just sucks. The end. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit from the TED Talk because I was scribbling down notes as she was talking. She's kind of said it like this. She says, there's no need to sanitize our pain. There's no need to write a narrative around it. No need to make the story just sad enough, but not too sad. Just critical enough to inspire change, but not so much that it actually criticized systemic structures. Just honest enough to seem real, but not so unfiltered that it creates discomfort. No need by the end of a 500-word essay for the hero to overcome the challenge. We don't need more consumable trauma. Do you get that word consumable trauma? Just sad enough, but not too sad. That's the trauma that most of us are used to dealing with from our friends and our acquaintances. But here, Naomi, she's honest. My husband is dead. My sons are dead. I'm still starving. I'm having a hard time finding anything good about life. But I do still believe in God, even though I can't make sense of what the heck he is doing in my life right now. We need to learn this healthy habit of Naomi, of just sitting in the suck, processing our feelings for real, eating a giant bowl of ice cream if that's what it takes, deleting the pictures that you need to delete, writing out a hate letter to someone and then deleting it and not sending it. Turning on a sad song and just for five minutes letting yourself ugly cry as you sit in the bitterness. And you know what else? We need to be willing to sit in the suck with others. I was talking to Karen earlier. And you know, she's had deep depression and she's a counselor and she counsels a lot of people that have deep depression. And she says, one of the things that people that go through deep depression go through is just feeling like a burden to everyone around them. It's why they take their lives. It'd be better off if I was dead for everybody else around me. Like Naomi, we need to be willing to be open about our suck. And like Ruth, man, we got to be willing to cling to others in their suck, so that they know that they are not a burden. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. 
They're going to keep reminding us that she's a Moabite because that's part of the story. Then it ends like this. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's your teaser. (laughs) That's what's going to bring you back for episode two. The story starts with a famine, but now it's harvest season. And so the announcer is going to come on. He says, will the ladies find food? Has Naomi lost God's love? Is God even paying attention? And what will become of Ruth's radical decision? Stay tuned next week for another exciting episode of Ruth. And I'll be honest, this last page of my sermon here, man, I had a beautiful ending written a nice little bow on top of this present that I was going to present to you. And yesterday as I read through it, I just deleted the whole thing. I deleted it because we don't need a nice little bow. We just need to sit in our bitterness or sit with someone else in theirs as we end this chapter. See, God is certainly 100% working in this tragedy in the suckiest of suck. There's a one point, or one in 9.2 quintillion chance to get a college basketball bracket right. Now, I don't have any ideas what the odds are for God to use this story from 3,000 years ago to impact our lives, but I gotta think those odds are infinitely worse. And yet he takes this story, and right now, he's using it. And he's going to get it perfect. He's going to have the perfect bracket. Within the darkest, most broken world, he will perfect it for his good and his glory. So I'm going to have the band come up, and we're just going to sing a closing song tonight. And as we sing, man, I don't know where everybody is in the room tonight. Maybe some of you, as we sing, maybe you take the posture of Naomi, of bitterness, and you just take this time to be honest that life sometimes sucks, that what you're going through right now is not fair, that you do feel like God is against you. Or maybe as we sing, you take the posture of Ruth. Even with your own struggles, because we all got struggles, even with your own struggles, maybe there's a friend right now, or as I've been preaching this, come to mind. God's bringing that to your mind right now. And maybe he's calling you this week to sit with them in their suck. So we're going to stand just so you have time. It's your time. Sing, pray. Let's praise God. Won't you stand?